Part of the joy of the Christian life is the privilege we have of serving the Lord in different capacities. But sometimes the things he calls us to do seem to be well beyond our capabilities, and they are. Welcome to A Walk in the Word, where we bring you the Sunday sermons from Providence Baptist Church Gaston's Worship Services. In this week's sermon, Pastor John Friedrich dives into what we should consider in these times to move forward and to ultimately succeed in the power of God. Let's join in as Pastor Friedrich preaches a message entitled, Pitchers, Trumpets, and Fleece, from Judges chapter 6. Well, it's good to be in the Lord's house with you guys this morning as we open up his word and see what he has to say to us today. So as I said, we're going to be at Judges 6. We'll be reading verses 11 through 16 this morning. And there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak, which was in Ophrah, and that pertained to Joash the Abiezrite. And his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord <clears throat> appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. And Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is this all, all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles, which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us, and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? And he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said unto him, Surely will, I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together. It is truly a, a wonderful thing to have a time during our week where we can come together and to celebrate you and to worship you and to just lift your name up in praise and and Lord, you are truly worthy of all those things and much, much more. And Lord, now as we begin to step into your word, we just ask that you would allow us to open our hearts and our minds to your truth. Let us see the truths that you want us to take away from this. And Lord, help us to be receptive to that such that it might take root and bear fruit in our lives. That we might continue to show others the, the way to your salvation, Lord. And Lord, I know I'm not worthy to be the one to stand here today to present the message. We just, I would just ask that you take away anything that could in any way interfere. The pride, selfishness, distraction, whatever it might be, Lord. Take it all away. Fill me with your spirit that the words that I speak are of yours doing and nothing of my own. And Lord, as a church, help us to continue to make the decisions that will be along the path that you've laid for us. That we might fulfill the role that you have uh, laid out as well. That we might always be in the center of your will in everything that we do and say. And Lord, as individuals, help us to see the need around us. The need for salvation. The need to show your heart to those that we come in contact with. And Lord, we just ask that you forgive us of our sins. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this morning we're going we're gonna to look back at Gideon. Um, and most people are familiar with that name in that we remember that we see, or used to see, it's not so much anymore, um, the Gideon Bibles that we 
uh, see in the motel rooms. And we all know about that organization. I've explained it before um, and how it came to be. Uh, it, be it began in the end of the 1800s. Uh, there were three businessmen that decided that they were going to have a goal of putting Bibles in all of the motels um, in the United States. And they originally called it the Bible Project. You know, it's a simple enough, uh, simple enough name, right? And so every bedroom in the hotel across the United States, they wanted to place a Bible in. Now, we look at that today and we think, well, that's not that big of a deal. I mean, how hard could that be? But we've got to remember this, the timing of this was in the 1800s, okay? At the, begin, at the end of the 1800s. They didn't, there were very few gas-powered vehicles at the time. Um, they did not have telephones like we do today. Um, so what they did is they got together once they decided they were going to do this and they were trying to decide on what, were they, what they were going to call themselves, what they what would be the name of the organization. So they all knelt in prayer and finally one of them stood up and said, we'll call her, we call the Gideons. Because he said humility, faith, and obedience were some of Gideon's greatest elements of character. And that became the standard by which they would try to do their work. And now the organization exists in 180 countries. Uh, they print and distribute Bibles in over 80 languages. So they have reached out and they've actually, to date, placed more than 1.3 billion Bibles and New Testaments around the world. Now the Gideon's vision of placing Bibles in all the hotels in America, like I said, doesn't seem to be that big of a deal to us now, but at the time, travel across the U.S. took days, not hours, sometimes even weeks. This was nothing short of a monumental task. It was almost insurmountable when you think about it, given the resources they had at their disposal. But their key well, in doing this, their object, obtaining their objective was based on an understanding that although it was men who would carry out the task, they believed, and history would seem to support this, that God was the power behind what they were doing. So one of the greatest examples of this in the Bible, ironically enough, was Gideon. So there's a, a, a neat connection there. But here's the thing, when we're first introduced to Gideon, he seems like one of the most unlikely of heroes to do the will of God when you think about it. We are introduced to Gideon while he is doing something that almost seems cowardice to us. When the angel of God comes to visit, he's by the wine press threshing wheat. Now this was an, a typical practice. Typically, when you threshed wheat, you did so on a high spot so that the breeze would carry the chaff away as you were threshing it. The wine press was typically down in an area that was low and, and it was cool and it was kind of protected. So here's Gideon. He's down by the wine press threshing wheat. Why do you think that might be? Well, the problem was the hide. Quite frankly, he was hiding from the Midianites. During the time of Gideon's call, the Israelites were under God's judgment. And the Midianites were the tool that God was using to exact this judgment. So wherever the Israelites would produce a, a crop or they would raise livestock, the Midianites and the Amalekites would come and they would literally take that from them. Almost to say, good, you've raised it, you've brought it up, you've grown it, now it's ours. 
And this was causing a great hardship. So it was oftentimes when that, as we see Gideon, he was hiding the fact that he was threshing wheat because he didn't want the Midianites to see what he was doing in order to prevent them from coming and taking it from him. But he was hiding. He wasn't being bold. He wasn't being uh, challenging in what he was doing. And yet the angel of the Lord comes and, and comes to him and calls him a mighty man of valor. Almost seems contradictory, doesn't it? But this is what led to the call of Gideon, the fact that they were being oppressed by the Midianites. The time of judgment God had felt would come to a point where he was going to raise up a man who was going to lead them out of this captivity, out of this oppression. And the call fell on Gideon. And so we see the great irony, one of the great ironies in the Bible, in that the title that was given by the angel of God to Gideon while hiding, he's greeted as a man of valor. This in and of itself teaches us something in that, that God sees us through the potential that we have. He sees what we are capable of in our obedience to him. I mean, how many times when we go through scripture do we see him call the most unlikely of people to do things? Moses to lead the Israelites to be their spokesperson, a man who apparently had a speech impediment. And time and time again it goes on. God calls, you know, it's interesting because we don't see God calling the, the great and the mighty and the, uh, the perfect, the, oh, this guy would be perfect for this role in our mind. God often calls those that don't really fit what we would think would be the leadership role. Because God sees what's in here. And he sees that if we are willing to be obedient, if we are willing to follow his call, we can do great things in his name, according to his purposes. And Gideon, from the start, exhibits something very key when it comes to God calling one of his servants. In verse 15, we see Gideon reply to the angel, and he says this, And he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Do you get what, you get what Gideon's saying here? This, I am the least in my father's house, implies that he was the young, one of the younger ones. Typically, the people that led the family, the, the, older, the oldest son was kind of in charge, so to speak, to lead the family and when the, the, uh, the father wasn't able to. What's more is he said he was poor in Manasseh. They were not a prominent family in Israel. They were poor. He was a, a younger one in his family. He was the least likely to be called. You see, when God calls somebody as a servant, he's usually looking for someone who is painfully aware of their weakness. Why do you think that is? Why do you think God would want to call somebody who is painfully aware of their own weaknesses? So we'll rely on God. 
So you see, the problem is when we call, he calls somebody who's bold and, and mighty and strong and very successful, the tendency for that person would likely be that they would rely on their own abilities and think, oh, well, I can do this. I have these abilities. But all too often, that ends up in failure because they're relying on themselves. So God calls and reaches out to those that are of weak, meek spirit. He calls on those that are recognized, I can't do this on my own. So that the result from that is I have to rely on God. God is the only way that I can accomplish what I'm supposed to be doing. This is precisely what Gideon represented. God's promise given through the angel in verse 16 is the motivating factor and what made much of the difference. Remember what he said? He said, surely I will be with thee and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. Can you imagine? You've got this entire army of people suppressing, uh, oppressing you, but you know what? As one man, you're going to go and you're going to smite them all. How confident do any of us feel that we could take on an army as one man. I don't think any of us are that silly. <laughs> but God said, you know what? You're going to do it because I'm with you. And the power to do so is not going to come from you. It's going to come from me. But even still, being having given, been given this promise of God, many... Or Gideon was still plagued with self-doubt. His faith was still shaken to some extent. From the very beginning, he sought confirmation. He needed a sign, so to speak, that he was being told what he was being told was truly of God and not of some other source. We too have the promise of God's accompaniment in everything we do when we are acting in His will. Well, look at Matthew. Matthew 28, 20, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and what? And lo, I am with you always. Doesn't that bring you comfort? Doesn't that bring you confidence? Knowing that Jesus himself says, hey, I am there with you. Not just some of the time, not just part of the time, but even unto the end of the world. He said he would never leave us nor forsake us. So Gideon is told, do this, I'm with you. You don't need to worry. But Gideon's still not quite there. So what we're going to do is we're going to step back, we're going to take a look now at what Gideon and the whole, all these circumstances and try and take out of this, what does it then take to do great things that God calls us to do. There are many of us that are going to be called into the service of the Lord in some way, shape, or fashion. All of us have some role, but some may be called to do things beyond the norm. Some may be called to do things that, well, quite frankly, on the surface, seem like they're impossible. But what do we need? What is it that will make us be able to be a part of that and be successful? Well, the story of Gideon lays out for us the key elements that will position us to be used of God in a mighty way. And the first thing we've got to do 
is that we've got to put away all the other gods in our life. Now you look at that and you say, well, wait a minute, I don't worship any other gods. I mean, I come to church to worship the one true God. I don't have gods in my life outside of him. You see, the first task that God commissioned Gideon to do was knock over the altar of Baal. Cut down the groves beside it and set up an altar to the one true God. You see, the suffering by the of the Israelites by the hand of the Midianites was a result of the rebellion against God. They had put other gods in their life. Now, while the Israelites were worshiping Baal at one point to some extent, how do we have other gods in our life? We don't worship Baal. We may not worship any of the, the Greek gods or anything like that, but we can find ourselves placing other things on the altar of God. When anything in our life becomes an impediment, gets in the way of our service, our worship, our relationship with God, guess what? It has just become your idol. It is what you are worshiping. Whatever your heart is, wherever your heart is, that's where your energy is going to go. That's where your focus is going to be. That is where your resources are going to end up. And then suddenly you are worshiping a different God. No, it doesn't mean you go to church and have an altar for these things. But we do so in a different way these days. By placing something with greater importance in our lives than God. And when I say greater importance, that means anything that interferes with our relationship with God. Because it's saying, God, this is more important than you. So we know that the Israelites, their, part of their suffering was rebellion against God. And there's clear evidence of this in the reaction that we see as a result of Gideon going up and knocking down the altar and cutting down the groves. See, the men, once they realized that this had happened... Gave us a good indicator of their spiritual condition. They got upset. They were angry. And that is a good test or litmus test for if something became a God in our life, has become a God in our life. How would we feel if it was taken away? How would we respond if it's taken away? When something happens that brings down an idol to make room for God, do we rejoice? Are we thrilled about it? Or do we lament and resent the fact that it has been taken away and get upset about it? You know, God will often use outside forces or people to bring down the idols in our life if we refuse to do it ourselves. God will first give us the opportunity to remove those idols from our life. And if we don't do it, oftentimes, he's going to put events in motion that will take them away. In this case, Gideon was asked to demonstrate his willingness to follow God's leadership. Even though it potentially could mean harm to him. Because of the reaction of the people once they realized the altar of Baal and the groves had been destroyed. <clears throat> now you... Think, well, surely the people weren't that upset about it, right? I mean, that may have, they might have gotten a little worked up about it and hated the fact that they might have to rebuild or something. But to get a feel for the way the people responded to this, 
Let's consider for a moment the punishment that they wanted to exact on Gideon. We see this in Judges 6.30. Then the men of the city said unto Joash, Bring out thy son, that he may die, because he hath cast down the altar of Baal, and because he hath cut down the grove, that was by it. These guys were so upset that Gideon had tossed down the altar of Baal, they wanted to kill him. They wanted him dead. That's how bit more important they, the idols that they had were. And I'm sure this wasn't any surprise to Gideon. I'm sure he knew how passionate they were about this. So clearly, he was fearful of the men's reaction because the scriptures tell us that he did this at night so as not to be seen. But in following the guidance of God, he demonstrated both literally and figuratively, he was placing God first in his life above all else. He was saying, God, you are so important to me that I don't care how these people respond. I'm going to obey your orders. I'm going to obey your commands. So he had nothing ahead of him when it came to God. He did God's will first at any expense to himself. The next aspect of doing great things was we must learn to trust God in his direction. Now, if we go along in the story of Gideon, this is where he needed a little help. So after calling the men of Ahiazer, Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali to join him in battle, Gideon shows weakness once again. His faith began to falter for whatever reason. Maybe it was that all these men gathering together for war kind of brought home the truth of what he was facing. The reality of the circumstances suddenly becoming very clear. We're not told why, but we're told but he made a familiar request to God. Gideon used fleece, a covering to validate for himself not so much the plans of God, but rather the outcome. In fact, we see that he asked for a sign, not once, but twice. I'll put the fleece out there. If it's wet, then I know it's you. I'll put the fleece out there again. If it's dry, I know that it's you. Now, some may look at this instance and say that this indicates that it's okay to come to God and ask him for a sign. But this process of validating faith with a sign is not presented to us as a pattern for us to follow suit with. It's very important to understand that Gideon's requests are a result of his doubt and his misbelief, his unbelief rather than his faith. He was not asking for an open door here. He was asking for a circumstantial sign. Give me a sign. Give me, show me something in the, in the clouds or whatever, you know? He was seeking a miraculous sign. He was putting God to the test. Now, yeah, it's true that God did accommodate his request. But we need to remember something. Gideon didn't have the scriptures like we do today. To go and look and seek out God's word. To seek out his guidance. Gideon at this point was likely going through agonizing self-doubt. That was produced by a combination of fear and the thought of, well, maybe these are just my own bright ideas and inflated delusions. 
But God had already demonstrated to him the validity of his calling when he had an angel visit him in the first place. What more did Gideon need? Though not through a miraculous encounter like Gideon, we nonetheless have the certainty of God's hand in the beginning when he calls us to something. And then either time or maybe it's the circumstances can suddenly cast doubt. We were talking the other day in our uh, devotional time about Peter stepping out of the boat. He called to Jesus. Jesus called me out. Jesus said, come on out. Step out of that boat. Peter steps out of that boat and everything's fine. He's got his faith, but suddenly he starts looking at his circumstances. The wind, the waves, the thunder. And his faith begins to waver. He begins to doubt and he begins to sink. It's much like us. You know, oftentimes we, God calls us and we, we're like, okay, I'm, I'm ready, I'm going. And then suddenly we start thinking, well, how is this going to happen? And how do we accomplish this? And then suddenly all these circumstances start weighing on us and we begin to doubt. And now we're not so sure that God really called us for this. Rather than simply having faith that God has called us, God is going to provide us the mechanisms that we need to accomplish his will. So we begin to look for a sign. And then we get frustrated because it never shows up. We don't get that sign that we're looking for. All the while, ignoring the circumstances that were clearly God moving at the beginning in the first place. So God accommodated Gideon in his time of doubt. But you've got to remember, we have got a tremendous source of direction, of guidance in God's word with us today. You all have them sitting in your laps right now. You don't need a sign. You've got God's word. But he's still afraid. Even after these signs, Gideon is fearful. Now this is a a reminder for us though, because it tells us that when God calls us into service, his grace doesn't delete or change our natures. He's not saying, you aren't going to have doubts, you're not going to have fears. He doesn't change our natures. It is up to us to put our faith and our reliance in God. When God comes into our lives, he takes the temperament which he created and begins to refine it, to empower it. So that we can do what he's calling us to do. So we must trust in his direction. And going right along with that, we have got to rely on God's strength to accomplish this. Now, when Gideon's army finally showed up from all these different locations, he had 32,000 men. Now, you and I hear that and we say, oh, that's a fairly decent-sized army. You think that sounds pretty good. And in most cases, it would be. But the scriptures tell us that the Midianites and Amalekites' numbers were absolutely huge. Look at Judges 7.12. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the children of the east lay along in the valley like grasshoppers for a multitude. And their camels were without number as the sand by the seaside for multitude. Now suddenly 32,000 doesn't sound so great anymore. Suddenly 32,000 seems like it's a far cry short from what he might need to accomplish what God has called him to do. So imagine the shock of Gideon when God suddenly says to him, you know what, Gideon, you've got too many men. There are too many in your army. 
I don't want Israel to think that they won this battle because of their military might. Tell the men that anyone who's afraid can just go home. God tells them, anybody's afraid, tell them to leave. In light of this and what we've seen about Gideon, you kind of expected the story to come to an end at that point with, and Gideon departed from Mount Gilead and the masses back to Israel. You figured Gideon would be the first one hightailing it out of there, right? But that's not what we read. What we read is of the 36,000, we see 22,000 packed up and left. 22,000 men said, I'm not up for this, I'm out of here. So now we see Gideon's left with about 10,000 men. You can almost feel the hesitation at this point in Gideon's reaction and his movements. But then God drops another bomb on him and says, you know what, you still have too many men. You can almost hear Gideon's jaw hit the floor at that point when you read it. And Gideon, God tells Gideon to do something particularly interesting at this point. And this, when you first read it, you kind of say like, well, why? I don't get this. But anyway, let's, let's read the verse and then we'll go into what, it, what it, the idea behind it was. God was setting a test for this, the men's eagerness in their willingness to fight. And when you go to Judges 7.5, it says, So he brought down the people unto the water, and the Lord said unto Gideon, Everyone that lappeth of the water with his tongue, as a dog lappeth him, shall thou set by himself. Likewise, everyone that boweth down upon his knees to drink. Now, what are, what are we getting at here? What, what does this mean? Alright? I thought this was an odd way of determining who should stay and who should go at this point. But when you think about it, it really does make sense. Those who went through the trouble of getting all the way down on their hands and knees and water to drink really probably weren't that eager at that point. They were taking their time, kind of putting off the inevitable. But those who just simply bent over and scooped water in their mouth quickly to slurp it out, they were raring to go. They were ready to fight. You can almost picture them saying, let's go, where are the Midianites? Let's bring them on. So God said, those that got all the way down on their hands and knees, just send them on their way. I tell them, go ahead and hit the road. And now Gideon is left with 300. 300 against an innumerable mass of enemies in the Midianites and the Amalekites. God had certainly positioned Gideon at this point to trust in the strength of God. Because he was at a significant numerical disadvantage. So what do we bring then into it beyond that? Well, the next thing we got to remember is to see God in the circumstances. See him moving. See him working. That night, Gideon was laying in his tent. I can only imagine what was going through his head. How in the world are we going to do this? 300, that's all I've got. It just doesn't make sense. I can't carry out God's will in this position. It's impractical. It's illogical. And quite frankly, I'm scared to death. You'd almost see God looking down at Gideon going, still haven't learned, have you? So he tells Gideon to do something. He says, get up. Go down by the enemy's camp. <laughs> now Gideon's thinking, what? What? <laughs> 
you want me to go down there? And just when Gideon thought it couldn't get any worse, God says in Judges 7.10, But if thou fear to go down, go thou with Pharaoh, thy servant, down to the host. God's saying, you know what, if you're scared, take your servant with you. <laughs> Not take some soldiers with you, just take your servant down with you. What do you think this mighty man of valor did? Did he boldly go down there by himself? No, Pharaoh, come on man, let's go. I'm dragging you along with me. But God sent him down there for a reason. God doesn't do anything without purpose, without an end goal in mind. There was something that he wanted Gideon to hear that would demonstrate for him that God was working on the enemy's camp as well. And he didn't know, he wouldn't have known about this any other way. So what he did is he had Gideon get close enough where he could overhear a conversation between some of the Midianites. One enemy was telling the other about a dream he had about a barley loaf rolling into the enemy camp and wiping out. Wiping them out. And no, this didn't mean that he was going to be saved by a baker. This represented something. So God made sure that he even had an interpreter, a dream interpreter there at the time. So that there was no question what was in the minds of the enemy. Look at Judges 7.14. And his fellow answered and said, This is nothing else save the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel, for into his hand hath God delivered Midian and all the host. What a privilege when you think about this, that Gideon was given the opportunity to see this conversation going on amongst his enemy, knowing that his hearts, the hearts of his enemy were being filled with the fear of Gideon, no less. Now, maybe they didn't know he only had 300 people. But nonetheless, God was working. He was working actively in the enemy camp. And Gideon wouldn't have known this otherwise. He was working completely independent of any, anything that Gideon had to do with. This is something we need to remember as well. We may look at some sort of calling that God has for us, some sort of path that he has laid us on, and we scratch our heads over it simply because it doesn't make sense to us. But we don't know what's going on in the background. We don't know all the other aspects that God is working on in this. We don't know the groundwork that God is laying to smooth out the road for us. We don't have the 360 degree past, present, future vision that God does. And that's why we have to move forward in faith. We must trust in the calling. We've got to remember that what he calls us to do is not as important as the faithfulness that we must have in doing it. So the last thing now we see coming out of the story of Gideon that we have to take away from this is that we must follow his plan to the letter. This is a strange battle plan that God laid out for Gideon. They would not raise a sword against the enemy. They would not even charge the enemy. They wouldn't use some clever flanking maneuver. 
to force them into a disadvantaged position. No, they are going to utilize the groundwork that God had already put in place in order to overcome their enemy to their greatest advantage. The men of Gideon's army, and I wouldn't advise this as a battle plan for any current day wars, would surround the enemy in three groups. Unless, of course, God calls us to do it, but whatever. They would surround them in three groups with their burning candles and pitchers and trumpets in their hand. Not swords and spears, pitchers and trumpets. And they would simultaneously break the pitchers, exposing the light, and blow the trumpets at the same time. Now, I don't know about you, but this doesn't sound to me like a very successful battle plan for an army of 300 against an innumerable army. But we've got to remember, God is behind this. By our standards, this was a losing proposition. By God's standards, it was a no way it's going to fail proposition. Once again, God had prepared the circumstances for this to be an effective battle plan. In any other circumstance, the enemy would have heard the trumpets raised up with their arms and used the lights in the pictures they were holding as a beacon to attack their foes. But no, God was behind this. God had planted the fear in the hearts of the Midianites and the Amalekites. He had prepared the way for his servant. And it was a brilliant, brilliant plan. And an act of God's handiwork. Had Gideon deviated in any way, it probably would have ended in disaster. But by using the element of surprise combined with God's groundwork, you know what happened? The enemy ended up fighting themselves out of fear. They destroyed themselves in their panic. And those that weren't destroyed ran off, fearing for their lives. Only God's playbook could have pulled off a stunt like that. It was a master plan created by the master himself. Now, we may not always understand what God is doing to allow us to follow his will. We may not always seem to have the courage, the strength to go forward, but only in following his plan are we guaranteed to be doing the right things. It may not always make sense to us. Let's be honest. But it is always right. So when he calls us to do his will, we should put away all the other gods, learn the trust in his direction, rely on his strength, see him moving in the circumstances, and most importantly, follow his plan. Don't be the typical human being that wants to try to interject our own rational thinking, our own plans, our own thoughts. Hey, what if we do this? Well, what about that? Do what God said to do. That's all you need. And like Gideon, we're going to see him do great things. But you know what? If you're not connected with God, if you don't have a connection, a relationship with God, you're never going to know what he's asking you to do. You're never going to hear him. Because to hear the voice of God in a manner like Gideon did, You've got to have a relationship with him. You've got to have the ability to hear him and him hear you. 
And this only comes about in one way. Once again, you've got to follow God's plan. God had a plan for Gideon, and you know what? He's got a plan for your salvation as well. But it's got to be followed to the letter. We can't interject our own ideas into how we get saved. We can't interject our own ideas into how to have a relationship with God. There's all kinds of people out there that are going to tell you there's all kinds of different ways to get to God, different paths to God. But my Bible tells me there's but one path to God, one plan with God, and that is through Jesus Christ himself. To the letter. Or five letters in that case. Jesus is the only way that we can reach God. We can try to do all the good works we want. We can try to do all the good things, good deeds, be generous, whatever. But you know what? That's not going to rectify the main problem we have. Because the problem is not that we're not doing enough good deeds. The problem is that we did something we shouldn't have. And that one instance is all it takes... And I know all of us have done far more than one. But one instance is all it takes for us to have that relationship with God messed up completely. Barrier there, nothing we can do about it. But as I said, God has a plan. He had a plan before he even created us. And that plan was to offer his son, Jesus Christ, as the sacrifice to pay for our sins. To remove the barrier. The Bible tells us that when Christ died on the cross, that the veil in the temple between the holy place and the holy of holies was ripped from top to bottom. Forever opening up a path. Symbolically, in the temple, realistically, in our relationship spiritually to God through Jesus Christ. But you have to be willing to first admit that you need Jesus. You'll never seek Jesus if you don't admit you need him in the first place. And God calls each and every one of us to him. He draws us to him. And when we feel that draw, we recognize, I can't reach you, God, on my own merits. I can't do anything to get beyond this sin barrier I have. And that's when God says, yeah, I know that. But I have a plan. And that plan is my son, Jesus Christ. And he can give you the way to me. And if we are willing to admit that he died on the cross for our sins, rose again three days later, and call upon him as our Lord and Savior, then we too can be called of God to do great things. We may not all beat an army with 300 men, but God can make a huge change in other people's lives through us. It may be just witnessing, for crying out loud, going out, telling people about Jesus, that they might be transformed by the Holy Spirit in such a way that brings glory to God. And others see that and say, wow, what kind of a change would cause that in somebody? But you've got to have that relationship first before God can use you to do great things. So why not come to the Lord today and offer yourself, as Paul put it, as a living sacrifice that God can use you to change the people around you, the world around you, that he might be glorified in doing so. Let's stand as we go to the Lord in prayer.
Heavenly Father, as we come before your throne this morning, we are grateful that we've had this time together. And Lord, help us to to look to Gideon and see the the things that, that were necessary for him to allow you to work through him and then apply those very same truths to our lives. Lord, help us to be open and receptive to your will that we might be willing to step in out in faith, that we might allow you to use us to accomplish your purposes and your will. Lord, we know the time is drawing near. Uh, the time is short, given the circumstances we see all around the world today. Uh, Lord, we know that your, your time is drawing near to call us out. And Lord, we just ask that you continue to help us focus to be about your business, about your will, until that time comes. Or until you call us home individually, whichever might be first, Lord. And Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity to serve you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in next time for another Walk in God's Word. Podcasts are available in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music and Audible, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, CastBox, Downcast, and BeyondPod. Search for and subscribe to Providence Baptist Church Space-Space Gaston Sermons. Until next time, may God bless you as we await his joyful return. Hi, this is John Friedrich, pastor of Providence Baptist Church. It's my prayer that our time together has helped you grow in your walk with God, or maybe he's even used it to guide you to discover the wonderful gift of salvation. If you're ever in our area, we would love for you to come worship with us. Our address is Providence Baptist Church, 977 Metafield Road, Gaston, South Carolina, 29053. If you'd like to contact us, you can do so through our website at www.providencembcgaston.com or email us at providencembcgaston at gmail.com. Again, thank you for tuning in, and we look forward to you joining us next time as we take a walk in the Word.